This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest this week is Dr. Anthony Magliocco of Protean Biodiagnostics. Dr. Magliocco has had a career spanning over 30 years and is an internationally recognized expert in developing and deploying advanced diagnostics to help cancer patients. Prior to founding Protean Biodiagnostics, Dr. Magliocco was chair of pathology as well as executive director of esoteric laboratory services at Moffitt Cancer Center. He served as scientific director of Moffitt Cancer Center Tissue Corps and founded new fellowships in molecular diagnostics as well as digital image analysis. Dr. Magliocco has published over 200 manuscripts, which have been cited over 10,000 times in the scientific literature. Today, we're going to be talking about the evolving role of the pathologist in the setting of personalized medicine. What has pathology as a field done well in terms of providing tools and solutions to assist clinicians and patients in individualizing treatment options? What opportunities are there for change or improvement amidst the massive growth and opportunities we're seeing in the field of personalized medicine? Will our expanding capabilities in image analysis and the promise of artificial intelligence enable us to create new and powerful tools to diagnose disease and help guide therapy? Have we finally turned the corner in incorporating diagnostics into large-scale prospective randomized trials, which will allow us to develop and validate powerful tools to refine our predictive and prognostic capabilities? Does image analysis and the ability to multiplex open up a whole new world of possibilities to create more powerful tools than we ever imagined? And what does the future hold? Let's find out with Dr. Anthony Magliocco right now on Digital Pathology Today. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Dr. Magliocco, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Now, we're here to talk about digital pathology and its role in personalized medicine. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a unique background in academics, as well as starting a new venture, Protean Diagnostics. So tell us maybe a little bit about what you've learned along the way, how you've seen the role of the pathologist evolving, and what's been your experience in the evolving role of personalized medicine. Oh, great. No, thank you. Great, great question. So um, I'm uh, Tony Malioko. I, I was trained as a, first of all, physician in Canada about 30 years ago and have worked in pathology in many different locations through my career. I did some work at the Fox Chase and then I was in a place called Saskatoon in Canada for six years doing a variety of things, uh, cytopathology and even some forensics there. I also ran a research program Following that, I was in Alberta, where I um, was heavily involved in cancer diagnostics and brought the HER2 testing program to women with breast cancer there. Most recently, I was head of pathology at the Moffitt Cancer Center. That's a very large cancer center that's very much devoted to bringing precision medicine to cancer patients and doing a lot of clinical trial work and very innovative things. Then most recently, I uh, left there to form a new company, Protean Biodiagnostics, where we're really focused on bringing the latest advances in diagnostic services to cancer patients everywhere, particularly those that are in underserved areas. Over the years, I've seen really pathology transform 
from almost like a forgotten specialty hidden away in the basement of hospitals to the point where it's very much central to how we diagnose and treat cancer patients. And in fact, um, precision medicine would not be possible without some of the, the great things that pathologists and their labs and teams bring, bring to precision medicine. And we've also seen huge advances in digital pathology from back where, you know, images, it cost $50,000 to get a one megapixel camera that was water-cooled to be able to take a picture of a slide uh, to today where we can have whole slide imaging and multi-spectral analysis of slides. So huge amounts of technological advances. So very exciting times in pathology. Yeah, de- definitely. I think there's a lot, maybe even a lot of parallels between the sequencing of the human genome, which you know originally started at a cost of about $3 billion and took a matter of months to even years to now where we can do it under $1,000 and in a, in a matter of a few hours. So I think similar, similar applications of Moore's law, so to speak, in digital pathology. And I think we're all, I think maybe we're about hitting critical mass and everyone wants to know, you know, what's taking so long? And I think we're finally getting to the point where digital pathology is becoming a reality. So that's, it's almost a cliche, you know, that the pathology is a specialty that's hidden away in the basement, you know, like you suggested. And certainly pathologists have a, a certain core competency and a core set of skills. So what do you think pathologists have done well over the past 20 years and even earlier? Yeah, I, I think pathologists really form the the science of medicine. Sir William Osler said, you know, your medicine is only as good as your pathology. And pathologists really provide that scientific basis to medicine, which is, you know, very much otherwise uh, art that's been passed down through the ages. And medicine is much older than science. But pathologists were really excellent at classifying diseases, at bringing new technology to the lab you know, making really critical discoveries about cellular function. They created the whole discipline of surgical pathology, where we started understanding different subtypes of cancer, the importance of staging as the cancer spread and classifying, and then the development of molecular pathology, which really began in earnest maybe back at the 80s, where it it grew into a whole new discipline, where uh, pathologists led the way in, in being able to classify the genetic and molecular basis of, of cancer that led to discovery and innovation of new therapeutic treatments for cancer. So pathologists have always been very much at the forefront of discovery, working really closely with their colleagues in clinical medicine and bridging the gap between clinical medicine and peer research. Right, absolutely. You suggested that you know pathologists are really very much at the foundation of what's becoming known as personalized medicine with our ability to develop and perform predictive and prognostic tools. Like many approaches to targeted therapy would not even be possible without this kind of testing. So is there going to be an opportunity for pathology to continue to add value and add even more value? Or have we kind of maxed out here? I think pathology occupies a privileged position in medicine. It is, um, and that's what attracted me. It's, it's very much at the center of decision-making in medicine that that's, a person doesn't have cancer until a pathologist you know, observes it and makes a diagnosis of cancer. 
the pathologist actually holds the cancer in their hand and has access to all of these incredible technologies. You, you know, you talked about the Human Genome Project that cost billions of dollars to, to run just 20 years ago, whereas now um, many academic centers are running the equivalent of multiple human genome projects every day on tissue specimens. So pathology is at the vortex of this knowledge explosion, and it's, it's a very exciting place to be. And I think we're only beginning to add to that as we learn more about the, the structural basis of cancer, the role of the immune system, the ability to study epigenetics and viruses and hereditary factors, and it goes on and on. So it's, it's an incredibly exciting time to be a pathologist. I say it's, you know, the second golden age of pathology, and that I'm, I'm, I really look forward to the future, that I think there'll be really incredible developments that will change the way we practice pathology going forward. Yeah, I think that's that's very exciting and encouraging to us practitioners in the space. And also, I think it's very good news for doctors and patients as well. Now, in terms of personalized medicine, I think kind of what comes to mind or the most obvious manifestation is this idea of a targeted therapy with a companion diagnostic. So that is, you know, there's a disease or a, a disease state, and then the biology in many cases, it's cancer. So the tumor biology is measured, or certain markers are measured or assessed by various methodologies, immunohistochemistry, fish, and so on. So for example, in breast cancer, you know, we look at HER2, either by immunohistochemistry or by fish. We look for estrogen receptors, you know, to see if these patients are candidates for Herceptin or the various other HER2 targeted agents or for hormonal therapy with tamoxifen or or other agents, depending on what the molecular tests show. So to date, there's, depending on how you count, roughly 40 or so indications for targeted therapy. And now as digital pathology becomes a reality, do you think there's going to be more opportunity in this area, you know, to develop more tests, you know, both in the molecular lab, but then also, do you see any role that digital pathology will have in refining our ability to target therapy? Absolutely. Digital pathology is transformative, and we're only just beginning to use it very superficially, in fact. So digital pathology can be used in in many ways. So one way is simply as a camera, where we can document and take pictures of things and share them with other pathologists. So In terms of telemedicine and accessing experts from around the world, digital pathology can close that gap and make global experts available to really any pathologist that's practicing anywhere. So so that's one advance that, you know, is very important and is available right now. But the other area is that pathology has traditionally relied on humans observing things, the pathologist. And the, the pathologist is, you know, they are an expert human observer, Humans are good at identifying patterns, but they're not very good at measuring and counting things. And so that's where there's a new opportunity in digital pathology is where we can now bring the power of analytics to an image. So we can use a computer to start counting things in the image. How many cells are present? What color are they? How much stain have they acquired? So they they can start helping the pathologist doing these mundane sort of calculating tasks that humans can't do very well. And not only that, they can go beyond that and they can start to see things that humans can't even see. So using technologies like artificial intelligence and deep learning, computers can 
detect and quantify and classify things that are beyond the perception of humans. So I think that in the future, we're going to see more use of computers to quantify images. And for example, in use of immunotherapy, that use of PDL1 with the human observer is notoriously difficult and humans frequently misclassify things, whereas a computer could perhaps more precisely quantify the protein expression and the types of cells that are expressing those proteins to give a more accurate and reproducible result. We've also seen you know, advances where the morphology might correlate to underlying molecular features such as KRAS mutations or certain types of DNA alterations in cells and where from a simple H&E image, the subclonality and mutational profile of a tumor can be determined. So we're only beginning to utilize these technologies, and I think that they really could have profound effects on the way that histology is used and that the way that the amount of data that we can get from a typical pathology slide or a histology slide will, will really be dramatically increasing over the next number of years. Yeah, there's so much data there, or intuitively there just has to be. And that's, Now, is it fair to say that you know, I think there's often a concern when we talk about new technologies or moving into the future of the unknown that people are maybe worried that their job's going to be taken away or they're going to be replaced by an algorithm or a machine. But is it fair to say that digital pathology, at least as far as we can see into the future, is more a complement or a supplement to what we do? That is, humans you know, have their key competencies and their ability to analyze morphology and look through the microscope, but there are certain things that maybe a computer is better suited to do, like you said, like maybe count cells, you know, or, you know, just handle big data or make comparisons across, you know, a vast number of images that's just too large for a human being to, to conceive of or handle? Uh, no, absolutely. You bring an important couple of points out there. Number one, is humans are concerned, and I've heard pathologists say this numerous times, that they don't want to actually work with digital pathology companies because they feel that the technology will replace them. And that, that, that is a real concern that human pathologists have, that they'll be replaced by digital pathology systems. However, the fact is, is that it's estimated globally there's, there's actually a massive shortage of pathologists that the amount of pathology work is increasing and that the amount of available pathologists is decreasing and the complexity of the work is increasing. So there are these forces that, in fact, many countries in the world don't have any um, pathologists at all. So, so that is a concern that uh, digital pathology may be able to close that gap. The, the other thing is that they can make a human pathologist better or more accurate and that they can do the mundane work like screen a slide and make sure they haven't missed an area of cancer, which is a benefit for not only the pathologist so that they don't get sued, but also for the patient so that they actually get the, the best treatment. So the digital pathology systems can be companions to that and to, to really help, uh, help the pathologist not make any mistakes. And then you alluded to how the, uh, the digital system can measure things humans can't. So we might be able to you know, stain slides with multi-spectral staining. In fact, using mass cytometry imaging, we can stain a slide with 69 to 80 or more markers. And so we have a, a dimensionality of the image that humans can't even comprehend. So the digital system will definitely be able to 
analyze that and support the pathologist. We, we also know that humans are uncomfortable giving everything over to machines, that we know that actually aircraft could probably fly themselves, but people feel much better with a pilot sitting there. So I think that there'll always be a place for a human pathologist to supervise these systems to make sure that they're behaving as expected and that, you know, they're not really doing something that's, uh, that's clearly not correct. So I think that digital systems will become more partners to pathologists than a threat in the future. I just, I just got an, just as an aside, I just got a new car and it became pretty obvious to me that we're pretty close to having cars being able to drive themselves. And then you mentioned just our ability to multiplex which is a very re- fairly recent development, you know, multiplexing either proteins, DNA, or RNA, and then it seems to be converging or coalescing now with digital pathology. So those two things, the ability to multiplex and then the ability to quantify the epitopes or the, the agents that are multiplexed in a very highly quantitative way is going to lead to the development of very powerful tools for personalized medicine. Let's, so let's just take a step back and talk about just some of the basics so we're all on the same page. So with personalized medicine or precision medicine, kind of the two of the key aspects we're looking at is prediction and prognosis. And, you know, my sense is that, you know, in diagnostics, we've been a little bit behind the curve in terms of those two areas. So could you just kind of give us some loose definitions? What exactly do we mean when we talk about prediction? And what do we mean when we talk about prognosis? And then how do tools that we've, we're familiar with, how could you give us an example of, of you know, how those work in the real world? Sure, that, that's an excellent question that um, prediction and prognosis have very specific definitions when applied to oncology and biomarkers in terms of cancer treatment. A prognostic biomarker is a marker that tells you the probability of a cancer recurring or metastasizing or causing death. So it's it's generally something about the biology of the tumor that conveys how serious it is to to the patient. Classical prognostic biomarkers, you can think of them if we use breast cancer as an example, would be the grade and the stage. So breast cancers that are a higher grade, uh, grade three, are much more likely to metastasize and kill a patient than a grade one cancer, even stage for stage. So we would say that grade is a prognostic factor for breast cancer. When we turn to predictive factors, predictive factors are biomarkers that are used to select a therapy. So if we continue to think about breast cancer, we can measure estrogen receptor, and that's been measured for decades, initially using a radioactive approach and then more recently with uh, immunohistochemistry. So the breast cancers that express estrogen receptor at a high level are amenable to treatment with an anti-estrogen drug. I think you had mentioned er- earlier, like aromatase inhibitor or a drug like tamoxifen that, that blocks the, the estrogen receptor. So you would say that estrogen receptor is a predictive factor. Other ones for breast cancer um, include things like PI3 kinase mutation or HER2, that these things when measured work as predictive factors. Although all of that being said, it's interesting to note that estrogen receptor is also a prognostic factor in its own right, 
in that tumors that are estrogen receptor positive have a better prognosis than tumors that are estrogen receptor negative if you don't give them any treatment. So sometimes there's a crossover between prognostic and predictive factors. But oncologists are definitely most interested in predictive factors and matching tumors to the best treatments for those specific tumors. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. I think it's, you know, we're all... We're all you know, excited about the prospects of personalized or precision medicine, but I think it's easy to forget that, you know, in some sense, we've been practicing it since, you know, for the last 40 or 50 years by measuring and treating patients for the estrogen receptor and the associated therapies, which was probably one of the first forays into personalized medicine. We seem to, though, have entered a new era in the, in the 2000s, you know, particularly with the advent of molecular diagnostics and multi-gene classifiers such as the Oncotype DX breast cancer assay, mammoprint, and then other assays for prostate and other cancers. And then along with that became the ability or the wherewithal to validate these tests in a very rigorous way using, you know, much akin to how drugs might be validated in large-scale pharmaceutical trials. And so I think perhaps in diagnostics, and you can comment on this for a variety of reasons, maybe we've also been a little bit behind the curve in terms of validating, you know, biomarkers in a rigorous way in, you know, multi-center cooperative group trials. So do you think we've been a little bit behind and do you think we're going to enter a new era as, as this approach takes hold? Yeah, you bring up a, a really good point about the process of a discovery and a validation of a, of a biomarker. And that process has been much less rigorous than the process of pharmaceutical trials. And I think certainly with pharmaceutical trials, there's significant risk to a patient. So, you know, we go through a phase one to make sure that the drug is not toxic and to find a tolerable dose. And then phase two to see if there's actual a signal that it may have some effect. And then a phase three trial where we really prove that a, a new therapeutic has clear beneficial effect over, over a standard therapy. We, we haven't really been doing that with, with biomarkers that we haven't really thought about that really well over the last number of decades. Often they were afterthoughts. So in the cooperative groups, I actually had a role in the cooperative groups for, for many years with the RTOG, so I'm familiar with, with what they do. But often the biomarker was put on as integrated factor or something that was measured after the fact. And one of the problems is when you do that is if you construct a phase two or a phase three trial and put the people on it and then try to measure a biomarker after you've completed the trial, there's a huge problem that first the trial is not powered for the biomarker, so it's underpowered. And then secondly, the tissue tends to not be available as it's generally not mandated that tissue be made available for biomarker studies. So you end up trying to study these biomarkers in retrospective collections 
where there's missing cases and they aren't properly powered. So the results become inconclusive. So this has really delayed uh, the ability to uh, deploy effective biomarkers. We, we've seen some large-scale studies recently be completed. That one is the Taylor X study, where Oncotype DX was evaluated in a very large prospective study. And this, I think, it took like 10 years to enroll enough patients, many, many thousands of patients. And then uh, the group that had the indeterminate results or the medium risk results were then stratified and randomized to show that the assay not only had prognostic power, but also predictive power to identify a group of patients that would benefit from adding uh, adjuvant chemotherapy to their, to their treatment. But the ability to do this, so that, that's only one or two biomarkers where it took a decade and thousands and thousands of people to do that properly, it becomes unreachable now that we have essentially hundreds and thousands of biomarkers and a real challenge in pulling people together and, and doing these uh, phase three type studies with sufficient power in them. So, so this is a huge challenge. How do we validate biomarkers in the age of precision medicine and in the age of N of one medicine. Some approaches are to take, um, for example, basket type studies and say, here's a group of people will, uh, you know, use a biomarker and then assign them to a, a drug compared to a group of people that we don't do that process and show whether actually in general using a selective process will improve outcome. But this really gets at the heart of precision medicine that the ability to do traditional phase one, two, three trials may simply not be possible as there are not enough people and studies of adequate power will not be able to be constructed that we will really, really need to think about other types of endpoints. For example, using liquid biopsy or a surrogate endpoint. If we treat a patient, does the tumor actually go away and can we monitor that effectively in real time? So very interesting questions you raise and, and very, very challenging to, to, to actually solve them. Yeah, I think you kind of summed it up nicely there in that biomarkers were perhaps added to these multi-center cooperative group trials as an afterthought. And it's really hard to, it's really hard to work in, in that sort of setting. But do you think maybe we've turned the corner with the Taylor X study, which I believe was the first of its kind. It was a trial where the focus was, the primary objective of the study was focused on the diagnostic. So it was a prospective randomized trial enrolling uh, almost 10,000 patients. So do you think that sets a nice precedent for the future? Um, it, it does in a way, and I think we're seeing a greater attention being paid to the value of biomarkers and certainly the valuation of the companies that create them. So, you know, if you look at a company like Foundation Medicine, the work being done to validate their biomarker and, you know, collect real-world evidence is where we're seeing a lot of this data now coming from in terms of can we, you know, collect data from thousands of people and really look at how it aligns with utilization of therapies and does it make a difference and can we gather compelling evidence to convince the FDA to approve its use and to convince payers to use it. So I think there's certainly more opportunity now and there's more awareness about the values of these, uh, these biomarkers and from a commercial point of view in terms of more resources are being uh, put to them as well because it's becoming clear 
we really do need biomarkers to help wade through all of these hundreds of new therapies and truly determine what are the right ones for the patients. If we look at it, these new therapeutic options are very expensive. Targeted therapies can cost uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. CAR-T therapies and engineered cells can cost millions of dollars a year. So it certainly behooves the system to come up with effective strategies to be able to properly select patients and avoid toxicities and all of those things. So I think there, there definitely is a lot of opportunity and that there's more consideration being made to, to run these trials now. All right, now let's bring it back to our focus of digital pathology. How does digital pathology tie into all of this? You know, to me, it seems like it would be almost the perfect match because, you know, all of these, even if it's not incorporated into the primary objective of a large prospective randomized trial, all the patients are going to have biopsies or tissue samples, and presumably moving forward, all the images are going to be digitized. And, you know, which seems much more convenient or amenable to study in the future than one-off molecular testing. So do you think, you know, digital pathology and these large trials are going to be a great match in terms of being able to generate predictive and prognostic data and features? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. But, you know, the early evidence is there is that, yes, they might be able to, particularly in the immune therapy world, because if you are able to acquire images from tens of thousands of patients or hundreds of thousands of patients in the real world setting, there may be enough data there to be able to inform neural networks and deep learning systems that they'll be able to start parsing out features that are related to prediction and response to to key therapies. However, you know, intuitively, there may only be so much information one can glean from an H&E slide that we may have to subject it to other types of stains to look at protein activation or metabolomic patterns or who, who knows what else is hiding in that uh, H&E tissue, even metals and other things, that there still may be additional processing that has to occur to that tissue to really reveal all of the hidden biomarkers that, that, that are in it. There, there may be only so far an H&E section can go even only so far that IHC can go because they're really just detecting antibody staining on things. They aren't necessarily telling us functionality of signaling pathways and so on. But it certainly will be a leap further than we're doing now in that if all of the images could be acquired, made available, they'd be available to learn uh, as we go forward. Whereas right now, all of that data is being lost, that slides are being made, they're being filed away in sheds and in basements, and there's basically millions and millions and probably billions of slides that are in warehouses that aren't doing anything, that they're a treasure trove of information if we're able to scan them and uh, match them. The other other features, you have to match them to the diagnosis and also to the outcome. And sometimes that's not easily done because in the world of pathology, this is a project we tried doing a few years ago where we tried to actually do a retrospective analysis of old slides. And it turned out we couldn't find their diagnosis anymore, that they were two or three lab information systems ago. And it was almost like data archaeology where no one could decrypt the findings and that it was it was lost. And people may be unaware of this, that medical data may get lost as we go from one medical EHR to another 
that the data may simply vanish. So that's something that we need to think about in the future. How do we preserve the data and really make it available for development of new algorithms and really put it to work? So some really interesting things there. Yeah, I think you're right that in in many ways that is a tragedy in that there's so much rich data locked up in basements that was just completely ignored. And then incompatibility with electronic medical records and so on has kind of rendered that lost, you know, which, you know, lost opportunity. But I think the good news is that we can recognize this and and develop uh, more efficient and more compatible systems and really unlock that data and develop better tools in the future. Now, and you also suggested that there's limitations to what we can do just in terms of what we can find in, in an H&E, despite how much data there is. But do you think we're coming to, you know, what I like to think of as somewhat of the holy grail, that is our ability to multiplex, you know, molecular markers, you know, hundreds of markers potentially on a slide and then incorporate H&E features or the analysis thereof with digital pathology to really come up with kind of almost a singularity of a predictive and prognostic marker. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly exciting to think about as we add the dimensionality of the, you know, decoding all these other biomarkers and being able to measure them simultaneously. And I do think it is the, the, the next step, but I don't, I don't think it's the end by any means, because you, you have to remember that tissue is a living thing. And when we fix it and make a slide of it, you know, we've, we've tortured it, we've pulled it out of the patient, we've shocked it, we've doused it in a chemical, we've embedded it in wax, and we've done all these terrible things to it. So that process may have changed it in a way that changes its biology. Also, we may want to keep the tissue living so that we can understand how it reacts to things. So you might be able to imagine in the future, if we go beyond histology, there might be ways to image tissue while we keep it alive, or maybe even image it in vivo. If we can remove it and keep it alive, we might be able to subject it to other treatments. You know, perhaps we could give it experimental treatments and see how does it respond to that. So I think there's still a lot more beyond, you know, just the uh, multiplexing analysis. I agree with you, the multiplexing is gives us dramatically more information and will carry us much further down the road for sure. But I, I don't think it's an end that there's going to be more things after that for sure. Okay. Well, that, I think that's very encouraging. There, there's always more. There's always going to be the next thing and something to look forward to and something to do better. So what? So thank you so much for coming on. I think before we wrap up, I just, I want to get your take on what exactly is this going to look like? You know, I think from particularly from a commercial perspective and what is the role of the pathologist, of the anatomic pathologist going to be? Because I, you know, what seems to be happening is people are falling in love with this ability to multiplex, quantify, and analyze large amounts of data with digital pathology. And is it going to become so good, you know, where the pathologist may be in some sense taken out of the loop? I even see commercial applications of this technology because it's essentially, you know, multiplexing of protein, DNA, or RNA, and then localizing it to the cellular compartment and then quantifying. And then it, they're rebranding it. They're giving it names like spatial genomics or single cell analysis. 
And it seems to me the end goal might be essentially to create and, and spit out a score and come up with something that's analogous to a laboratory test. So is that far off? And is the pathologist going to be, remain relevant? And for how long? Yeah, so some really interesting observations you're making there about how these technologies are able to quantify things and come up with a sort of a canned answer or a certain aspect of the features of, of a disease. But but you have to remember each one of those are, are really only a single test in its own own right. And first and foremost, a pathologist is a is a physician. And they, um, they function as a physician to interact with their colleagues and also to, to, to care of patients. And there's a holistic aspect to the patient as well that, you know, does the patient have cancer? Is the tissue that's removed, is that actually cancer? Or is that an immune condition or some other thing? So I, I, I think in many ways the pathologist is, is very central to all of these diagnostic technologies and we're seeing multiple diagnostic technologies. We're seeing the digital imaging, the spatial genomics, we're seeing proteomics, we're seeing liquid biopsy, but they're, they're still very much are the, and perhaps they're the only physician that can really get a handle on all of these multiple technologies. The closest one to the pathologist is probably the radiologist and I see as we go forward that there may be more fusion between pathology and radiology as uh, radiology imaging can start imaging almost down to a cellular level and and gives a functional uh, analytics of the system. So I think as we go forward, the pathologist role will change. So I think a pathologist is more than just a slide reader or um, an attachment to a microscope. And certainly I try to teach my residents and fellows this, that they have to go beyond just making diagnostics. They're, they're, they're a physician. They have to be able to bring that information to their colleagues that are surgeons and oncologists and be able to educate the, the patients and really understand how to manage new technologies that comes in. So it, it really behooves the, the pathologist to master that rather than be replaced by it and to really find their niche. And I think they have a very privileged niche in the center of all of this. I describe it as a vortex of knowledge that's spinning around them. So pathologists are, are there in the middle observing all of this, but I, I still think there'll be a key position for them as they, they learn to manage that data and learn to put it to best use for, for their patients and uh, how to manage it for their colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah, I think pathologists are first and foremost physicians, and we need to find our niche and continue to add value. So Dr. Anthony Magliocco, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Pleasure speaking with you. Fantastic questions. And look forward to listening to you next time. Our guest has been Dr. Anthony Magliocco of Protean Biodiagnostics. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.